What up, everybody? Welcome to the X-Cast. Right about now, we want to welcome you to the greatest podcast on earth. Hosted by yours truly, the XSP. I want to hear you say X-Cast. X-Cast. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the X-Cast. Today, we have a very special guest. Before we get to that, let's take care of some things. If you like podcasts and uh, you like people talking about their lives and different stories that can maybe change your life, I would like to suggest a few. You could look at um, A Burning Hope with Renee Torres. He uh, has a podcast on Spotify. Also, my brother as Project Restore on Spotify as well. And I have the uh, the Xcast with XSP on Spotify. You can look at back episodes and current episodes that I'm putting up. And uh, you can also check me out on Spotify as an artist, as a musician. Uh, if you look up the XSP-Extreme Street Preacher, um, you can find me there as well if you like music, uh, all kinds of music. Also, if you want to donate to this and, uh, you know, give to the channel, you can donate at uh, the PayPal. There you go. Look uh, under at DemonSlayerXSP at Yahoo.com. That's the place you can get it. Uh, today we have a guest that uh, I don't necessarily always agree with, but definitely understand that everyone has different opinions and everyone has different walks of life. And uh, I like to broadcast those things. I like to share those things. So I have Dr. Chintos uh, Hernandez or Jacinto Hernandez on the program now. And we're going to get right into it. All right. We are here. And my guest today is Cintos Chintos. I'm not sure the correct pronunciation, but Hernandez, doctor. How are you doing today, sir? How's it going? Pretty good. How are you doing, PJ? I'm doing great, man. And uh, I appreciate you being on my show. I said uh, earlier, we don't always see eye to eye, but I do respect uh, the fact that people have other opinions. And I'm here to set, set up a platform to do so. So uh, I really do appreciate you coming on. Uh, but no, before, no worries, man. Go ahead. No, no worries. Yeah, before we get to some of the harder stuff, I want to ask you something I do use as an icebreaker question. Have you ever seen anything that you couldn't explain, whether it be paranormal, <laughs> supernatural? Abducted by aliens, anything like that? What's up? No, I haven't been probed yet. <laughs> um, well, not that I know of. But uh, well, I mean, I've uh, I've been around people that have experienced, but I've never experienced anything paranormal. Um, I've had like ghosts seen behind me, like when I'm running away from a, cer a certain place, and they saw a ghost behind me. Probably the weirdest thing I ever remember seeing is uh, one time. Um, I was younger, I was a teenager and I was home alone and I was, I heard like a loud roar in the front yard. So I ran to the front and it was, it was late night. My parents were out and I ran to the front yard and I saw like this, just this giant thing. It seemed like a, you know, like a, a spaceship just floating. It seemed to me. And it seemed to me, it's like, I don't even know if it was a dream or if it's like legit, but cause it was so long ago and I, but I still remember it so vividly. And it was just this giant thing floating. And it was like, I was barely catching the tail end going over my house. So I run 
to the through the house to the backyard and i look out the back and i see a um this just this tip of this thing coming over my house and then all of a sudden it just zooms real quick high up and it just disappeared and that's like the weirdest thing i've i'd ever seen um but that's probably the weirdest thing i've ever experienced in terms of et stuff <laughs> all right cool man well check this out we are we here at the x guys we love to talk to people of different different types of environments tell me what was it like growing up in uh uh in your in your household when growing up what was the atmosphere tell me what what uh what was it that brought you to kind of uh what was your upbringing like basically well um i grew up um you know i grew up in the in the barrio in dallas called oak cliff uh born and raised there well actually i was born in irving but i moved to oak cliff when i was a year old so i was basically raised there and uh my dad, he went to college. He went to uh, North Texas, graduated from there. He actually started UT, dropped out. Um, my mother only has a sixth grade education. She doesn't um, have, um, she doesn't know much English. She only speaks Spanish. Um, my dad is this uh, first generation. His parents are from Mexico, and but he was born in Dallas. And so that's kind of like my background in terms of family education. Grew up, you know, both of my parents are still alive. They're older. My dad's in his mid eighties and my mom's in her mid seventies. Uh, a lot of things. It's, I have a very unique, I guess, background in terms of, um, mental illness in terms with my mother, things like that. Um, she has gone through depression throughout her whole life and we've had to go through, live through a lot of that. And so that's just, um, been part of my life. And it's something that I always recognize is, as um has affected all of us you know um but it's it's been just roller coaster with that because of um her diagnosis it's like a case study and it's it's pretty it's pretty um drastic it's i guess it's pretty extreme her case uh what she's gone through and in her life even to this day she she's still trying new medications and things so that's that's affected me uh but my parents are very uh, liberal minded. They, uh, I mean, in fact, my, my brother was, his middle name is Fidel. So that gives you a little sense. And my other brother who passed away, uh, his, his middle, his first name was actually Ernesto, which is after uh, Che Guevara's, uh, that's his actual name, is Ernesto. So they were pretty socialist, I guess you could say. Um, back in the day, they, they did go with, uh, they helped uh, Jimmy Carter, when he was in office, they uh, participated in that. My dad was heavily involved in that in the Dallas community. And so that's when he really got into the pol into the political game. Um, but my dad, uh, just growing up, my grandpa was pretty wealthy. He, uh, he had his own restaurant, one of the first restaurants. I mean, not restaurants, I'm sorry, a store in uh, Little Mexico, part of Dallas. And it's, um, he became a millionaire out of it. And so, um, but he's always stayed humble. That's the thing that he's always passed on to my dad and my dad's passed on to us in, term, in terms of humility, where even though he, he became a millionaire, he never, uh, never bought a giant house. His house remained next door to the store in downtown Dallas. Now it's like a $20 million property, but that's an old story because they sold it about 10, 10 years ago. They sold it um, 
he died back in the like back in 1980 but the rest of his trust was given to my grandmother and and so she lived there until her death back in 2009 and that's when they kind of sold the store and gave it away and sold it now it's like in one of the prime prime real estate of spots of downtown Dallas because that's where it was located in downtown Dallas so that's kind of where um my dad was his upbringing was that um but the house like it's a house that you would see on the poor side of town it's a it was an old rundown house um you know that my grandma never kept up and it was just but it was livable you know it was just a home for her and she she raised my dad there and all of his brothers and sisters and uh, they never moved out of there and my grandma never moved out of there and she she lived her life just from there and next she would just walk next door to the store because it, it stayed in the family until 2009 now it's a parking lot they torn it down there's there's a million dollar um condos there there in downtown dallas so it's it's what it is now but um that's kind of the background from where my dad came from and he when he grew up when he was he took over the store and then my mother got sick and he sold it to my 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 aunt and so my dad uh, when he when he had the store, he had to make a decision of where he was going to um, uh, move, where we we're going to move, and that's when uh, we we decided to move into Oak Cliff, which is a more diverse neighborhood at that time. And so he didn't want he got that hum, that humbleness because it was just these really nice homes that he was really looking into, but he wanted to remain make sure that we remained humble and in a diversified neighborhood. So he decided to move into Oak Cliff. And so with that, uh, he decided to buy a home where they still live to this day. And uh, so that's kind of like a little bit about my background uh, in terms of growing up. And the, the, the beautiful thing about where we grew up is that we grew up on two acres that my dad bought, even though it's in the barrio, it was nice because um, we had that privilege of, of having like woods as part of our property. So people with friends would come over and we just, we were in the woods all day. I mean, we built clubhouses. We just, it was just, that was us like growing up. It was just all day. That's all we would do. And it was just um, the beautiful memories that we had growing up um, our entire lives. And it was, and it's something that, you know, that I always, like, I wish I had that for my daughters. I don't even get to have something like that. Cause you know, we, we have our little home and everything, but um, it's just so different now. Uh, that's another thing, just having different, like, what they used to let us do. I don't know if I could let my own daughters do, because it's just, there's, I don't know why there's, it's a fear factor for us now, but it's just something that it is. Yeah, I think there's a different, it's a different time period now than what it used to be. There's obviously yeah. a lot of things going on in this world that weren't going on, or they weren't, at least they weren't well known back then. Right, uh, and I think that's what the, I think you hit the key word there where, it wasn't that well known. It may have been happening, but it just wasn't the the you know it wasn't so social media and just yeah. yeah it's yeah or yeah it just wasn't noticeable as much because you know everybody was in their tight communities and they just knew about what was going on around them. Right. So you said that you lived in a very diverse kind of atmosphere. What were some of the diversities you saw uh, growing up as a, as a kid? Well, uh, it was strange because during that time, this was in the um, early. 80s i guess you could say when we first moved into the neighborhood um there was some uh pretty older apartments that were behind that that weren't the property a little there's a, a piece of property behind our property 
And then there was some apartments that were pretty um, older apartments. And in those apartments, there, there lived um, a lot of uh, low-income families. But then in our neighborhood, it was a lot of older white um, families. And they were older, like older elderly people. And as they either moved out or died out, it became more of a Mexican uh, dominant neighborhood. And that's what Oak Cliff has become. It was during the time of white flight, I guess you could say, during the 70s and 80s when a lot of people that were living near the city moved out to the suburbs. It was just a part of, it was a historical uh, kind of, I guess, uh, change that happened during the 70s and 80s when uh, more minorities were moving into the inner city. A lot of white people were leaving their neighborhoods and moving out to the suburbs and creating suburbs. And so it became now to this day, now it's more of a Mexican, uh, more Hispanic neighborhood. Um, but then also when I went to high school, uh, so a lot of my, when I went to, to I went to Catholic school and I, uh, it was a, 90 something percent uh, Mexican American or Hispanic school where the kids went. That's what it was. Uh, and then when I went to high school, it was actually more, it was a Catholic high school, but it was a predominantly black high school, which is very strange because it's the, it was in the neighborhood that it was because Oak Cliff is, has areas. It's, it's, there's a lot of, um, I guess you could call um, voluntary segregation in terms of that's where the neighborhoods are and that's just the way they are in a lot of urban cities but that high school I went to was a very predominantly black it was probably about 60 percent uh, maybe not that high maybe like 40 something percent black and about 30 percent Hispanic and about 20 percent Hispanic and I mean white and Asian uh, mixed in there but it was a it was um that was my first high school. And then my dad, he had money invested that he lost. Um, uh, a company he had invested in went bankrupt, so I had to move out. We had to move out of private school and I had to go to public school. And that's when I went to uh, Sunset High School for my last two years of high school. And that was just uh, throwing like a, a lamb to the wolves is what it was. It was an eye-opener for me because I, I basically led a sheltered, um, mostly, mostly sheltered life up to, up to my, uh, junior year of high school. And that's what, what I saw. The, what were some of the things that, uh, that you kind of experienced in that place that kind of opened your eyes to the rest of society? Well, um, good question. Uh, just the first day, the first day I, I remember walking in, this is, you gotta remember this is the early nineties. So the early nineties is in the urban areas was the explosion of gangs, explosion of gangs. And, and this is one of the toughest schools in all of Dallas. It was just one of the, one of the highest, um, I guess, density of, of gangs in this area of Oak Cliff. And uh, so when I went there, I remember the first day I went in, uh, I was walking in the hallway to my first class in the morning. And I see this little short guy just running and he had a bloody fist and he's just running down the hall and i just like for sure i just move out of the way i'm like what the heck is going on and and then as soon as uh he passes me i keep walking you know still like just amazed about what's going on and i see a teacher walk out and the teacher's nose is just bleeding like he had just knocked the teacher in the right in the nose and that was like 
well, what am, what, what did I just, you know, what did I just get into? Because my dad did give me the option of staying because he had, the principal really wanted him to just to keep us there to finish off our schooling. But my dad has a lot of pride and he, he, he does not, he never asked for help in anything. And so he said, no, that, um, but he still gave me that, that he still asked me because I had already started. I already had been in there two years, but I said, no, that, and I wanted that public school experience that I'd never had. So I decided um, to go to the public school. But that's where I made some of my lifelong friends, though, because, you know, that was just one thing. But just different things that, are, that I saw where we had metal detectors put into our school, um, fights all the time, um, you know, people bringing in shotguns to school. It was just normal. It was a normal thing. It was like so many of the people that I knew at the school, they, they would carry them. And even they, could, they knew how to bypass the, the, the metal detectors. They just, just throw it through the window of one of the classrooms, throw their backpack through one of the windows to get it in. And it wasn't that you were going to use it, but just it was like almost like a little so protection maybe. badge of respect. You know, protection and just more respect. Like, look what I can do. Right? It was just more of like showing your peacock feathers, I guess you could say. So during during that time with the, that kind of schooling, did you ever experience any kind of racial injustice or things like that? Uh, now that you're kind of open to this different type of environment, did you experience any of that? Well, I saw, um, I don't know if it was race, but I think it was more um, anger. Uh, it was a little bit after the the Dallas Cowboys parade um, that happened when they first won their first Super Bowl in the 90s. Uh, they had a parade and there was a huge riot. It was, it made national news, but it didn't make it, it didn't last long, but it was a big riot in Dallas at that time. It was, it was during, I guess, all the fiasco. There was a lot of racial tension at that time. And, um, during that, uh, riot of the parade, um, a lot of, um, blacks were, uh, black people were running around the city and they were just attacking people and they were angry. And uh, my brother was out there. He got his, his um, camera taken from him from right from his neck. They just pulled it off of him. And it was just a big, it was just anger going on with uh, a lot of racial tension that was going on with the Rodney King things. It was just their way of, the, I guess it was the release that had happened. And I don't know if the, the environment was set or what. But there was a lot of tension right after that. And uh, I remember at school, I was in my locker during lunchtime. And um, like I said, when I went to Sunset High School, it was a 97, 98% Hispanic school, uh, the public school I went to. And uh, one day I remember I was in my locker a little bit after the, the parade. And I'm getting something from my locker. And I see one of the football players. He's a, it's a black football player. I see him just sprinting behind me, like sprinting at full speed behind me. I just, you know, I feel him coming. And I just see him run, and he runs out the door. And uh, behind him, I see a mob of Mexican kids, students, just chasing him. And they were going to just, you know, just beat him up, I guess, attack him. and. Uh, so I remember that the school made a policy where they actually had to separate the African-American students for a while, for about a week or so, from the Mexican or Hispanic students because 
um, there was there was a lot of the videos that were coming out of that of that parade showed like uh, black people attacking Mexicans, and so they were they were angry at those pic at those videos, and so that's this was their I guess their vengeance that they were taking out on the African Americans at our own school, even though they may not have they probably didn't even participate in any of that of that drama, especially because a lot of the black Americans that lived in our neighborhood, they, you know, they had very close friends, but just because of the color of their skin, they were attacked um, because, you know, because of the mentality that was going on together, at that time. They get lumped in together. Yeah. 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 People see something and they, they lump it all together. Right. Okay. So you grew up in that kind of environment. You kind of did that switch over. What was it that thrust you into the education field? What was it that, uh, they kind of said, hey, you know, I think I need to educate people. What was that? Uh, that's was a good, children? great question. Um, well, I think it was my experience at the public school that made me uh, want to switch up into um, education because when I went to that school, I saw what teachers were giving us answers to test questions. They, were, uh, they would give us tests. Walk out the room. Walk out of the room. Give us a study guide to the test, so we can just put down the answers. Come back after twenty minutes, and of course we'd all ace the test. I see. Uh, we, my brother did a. Uh, he did a little, a little test one time. He he had to do a paper. So on the on the the paper he wrote wrote, he wrote like the first page and a half. It was a five page paper. The first page and a half. He wrote what it was required, but then on the second half of the next page, he just started writing like, I wonder if you're even reading this. Like he wrote this. I wonder if you're even reading this or are you just um, making us write this? You're never even going to grade this. And he wrote a whole like manifesto about like that they don't even care. They don't even actually check our work. And he got an A on it. Like she hadn't even read the paper. So that was like his test of saying like, how much do they actually care? You know, so you think that that happens even to this day? Uh, honestly, oh, yes. Uh, yes. Being, being in education myself, you see it all the time that I mean, teachers get uh, lax and they get very kind of like, oh, well, just just go ahead, <laughs> whatever. You know, right. especially towards the end right. of the year type. But yes. okay, yeah, keep going. What's what else? And so that, uh, they thrust you into that, that realm. Well, because I had so many teachers like that. I mean, I had some great teachers in public school. But um, a lot of the ones that I did see, they, um, they, they're the ones that where I found my passion were, we need good teachers in public schools. So that's where my love for public education came in. And that's where I decided that when I do go to college, that I will go to become a teacher in a public school in a disenfranchised neighborhood because that's where, um, that's where my passion is. And I found my passion in actually bad teachers. So that's what made me, uh, that's what thrust me into the education field. So what, what was your main goal once you got, or what was your first year like being a teacher? Uh, um, were there some ups, were there some downs? Tell us some about some of the, uh, some of the things that, that occurred. Yeah. First year well, as a young student, you know, you're just, when I was doing my student teaching, uh, I remember that even though I had the passion for it, I was still immature and young. And I remember I was, you know, in my early 20s and uh, doing my student teaching. And that was my test. My, the student teaching for me, some people have bad experiences with student teaching. I had 
an eye-opening, uh, what we call a transformational experience in my, uh, in my student teaching because I was still, still in college. I was um, still partying a lot. You know, I was still doing all of that thing. And so I was still in that immature stage. And so when I wasn't applying myself as, a, as I should have as a student teacher, I was arriving late. I was uh, not preparing lessons well. I was not making connections with students. You know, I wasn't doing any of that um, during my student teaching. And uh, midway through it, um, I had, they called me in for a, for a meeting with my supervisor from the university and my mentor teacher who I was working with for my student teaching. Because student teaching, you're, you're, you're paired up with a mentor teacher and you, you, you kind of start watching. You start the first weeks, you just watch. And then, you, and then as the semester continues, they start giving you more responsibilities. You start creating lesson plans. And then until about the middle of the, the first of that semester, you're doing full-on teach where she's just watching you. And then you slowly give it back to her because at the end of the semester, of course, they're going to go back to her. Um, but she's always in there with you. So they had a meeting midway through the, through the, of the semester, and they asked me, is this your calling? Is this what you want to do? They asked me. This question was the one that I'll never forget. Do you, because they were all bust. All these kids were bust. They were, it was 95% of them came from a, uh, from, it was in Hayes County. That's where it was. Hayes CISD. And this, it was a community of mobile homes. And that was 95% of the kids came from those mobile homes. And the 5% came from some these um, two story homes that were near the school which was just a few houses that were there. Now it's the whole demographics have changed there at that school because the, the you know, how Hayes has just exploded. Um, so, but at that time, that's what it was. So, counties, I think. Yes. And counties. so, uh-huh. All of the kids were bust. Every single kid. There was no parent pickup. All of the kids were, 15 buses would come in to pick up the kids and take them home. And so, my teacher, she, my mentor teacher, she said, what do you notice when the kids are going home? We, we, me, you and I started together at the beginning of the year together. She maybe started a week before me, a week or two before, but basically we had been um, together with the kids for the same amount of time. What do you notice when the kids are leaving every day? Um, and I said, well, they get on their bus. Like, yeah, but what do you, what do you notice? What they do before they get on the bus and she says and i couldn't think i wasn't i i said i don't know she was like they come and give me a hug do you see that they come and give me a hug it's because i built i built a connection with them and that's why they hug me but do they do that to you do they give you a hug when you're when they're leaving and i'm like and you know i know the answer is no it's rhetorical and uh that was my that was my 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 moment where I said, is this, I, 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 this is my passion. I need to dedicate myself to it. And so from that point forward, I changed. I stopped doing the partying. I stopped being late. And I remember it was probably in November, close to the end. I remember um, I had a 
meeting earlier that day, so I couldn't show up to the to their field trip they were having in New Braunfels. They're going to this old oak tree. Um, I remember that, and uh, they were gonna all meet there. So it was in this neighborhood. It was maybe in Buda. I don't remember. It was this old oak tree that we were gonna go meet. It was in this neighborhood, and I just remember that I said I'll meet y'all there while y'all are there. And so I remember driving up, and it was probably like at you know nine thirty, ten in the morning, and all the kids are around the tree, and I parked probably half a block away from the tree. And uh, when I get out of my vehicle and I start walking. And I see a mob of kids running towards me. And it's like the greatest feeling because they all come running and just hugging me like, Mr. Hernandez, Mr. Hernandez. And it was like the greatest feeling I've ever had. And that's like, this is it. This, you know, I've made that connection with them. It took me a little bit, but I made that connection. And, and so that was my transformational moment that, you know, when I first got into the actual classroom with teachers, I mean, I did some field-based work before, but with that that that's where i made the connection and the first year i they hired me there they hired me at that school to teach first grade for the second for january to the end of the year so that was actually my first year teaching i they loved me so much that the principal decided to hire me and i worked the rest of the year there it's at tom green elementary that's the name of the school awesome that's one of the things i learned in, in education you gotta you gotta let the student know that they can trust you and that they can take a chance with you and that's right. not always the easiest thing in my field. Mm -hmm. uh, special education is definitely even harder because you're dealing with kids oh, yeah. with obvious mental illness and things like right. that. So I can understand that concept of when you got them, you know, and it's it's very yeah. evident that uh, that you know you've done something in their lives. All right, so right. you've been teaching for a number of years. You have 21. your twenty one mm -hmm. years. You have a, a doctorate. Um, yes. And so where did the, the, polit the political um, arena come in for you? Uh, I know you're, you're very outspoken on political issues. Where did, where did all that mm -hmm. come from? What was the start of it? Uh, what, what was uh -huh. the, the one thing that just said, hey, I need to get involved in this, in this arena? Uh, well, my dad always pushed that on us. Like he always wanted us to um, get politically engaged. And he had always, you know, he's very liberal. And he would always um, talk about that with us. And, but he never, like, pushed us into, like, you know, I remember getting to meet Bill Clinton in the, in the, when his first real, I got to actually, he gave me a high five. At something I remember he came by to Dallas before election night in 92. And I remember uh, him hitting my hand when he was passing by, leaving on his plane. Um, that's probably, like, to the extent. It was probably when um, when I got into college, uh, when I got into community college, because when I first started, I started at community college. And uh, that's when I started being uh, like-minded people who were a lot into uh, Mexican culture and political. So it's like Mexican culture, I also political. So we decided to form this student organization and uh, it was called La Raza Alianza. And, uh, it was just a Chicano student organization there at the community campus. We had the counselor that was there at, at the college that um, was a, sort of our sponsor. And we just got, you know, we had meetings and uh, we did a few marches. But I think the, the thing that uh, where I really felt like I got into social justice was uh, when um, on TV, 
I saw the uh, the beating and shooting of a of a friend of mine, and on it was captured on live TV. And this was in the in the mid nineties. Uh, I remember um, his name was Roy Trujillo. He was um, and it was in Dallas. He had been uh, a restraining order from his from his kids. Him and his wife had had a bad breakup, and uh, he had a restraining order from staying away from his kids. But he loved his kids a lot, so he took them. And so it was considered kidnapping. And so uh, the the police gave there was a police chase, and uh, in the in the footage you see him um, running away from the police. Right, he's he he walks through this field, and then he goes into some a little bit of a wooded area, and he's running away from police. And the, uh, a policeman is giving is giving chase, and uh, when he catches up to him, like you could see Roy put up his hands, you know, like he gave up, and then all of a sudden you see the policeman shoot him, and uh, the policeman shot him, um, in the I guess in the crotch area. And he fell down, and then the policeman handcuffed him. And when he handcuffed him, this is all caught from the policeman didn't know he was being filmed by by it was a fox, a local fox helicopter, and he was filming all of this. And after he handcuffed him, he started hitting him in the face. After he was already shot and handcuffed, he was standing on he was sitting over him, and he was just beating, uh, hitting him in the face. And I don't know how many four or five times he hit him in the face. He just punched him in the face. So that really angered me, especially because it was a personal connection. And so have a very unnecessary exactly uh, since he's already been handcuffed. Exactly. And so come to find out later on, uh, because there was a, a an issue with kids, um, that he had taken his, his children, um, the, the police officer had told we found out later from from him that uh, the police officer told him like I, um, before he shot him, he said, I'm going to make sure you never have kids. And that's why he shot him there. And then that's when he did what he did to him. Well, um, we did our organization formed a, a protest. We organized a protest and we got over a hundred people to go out and protest there in downtown Dallas. And that was, um, I think that's where I felt like alive. That's where I felt that social justice warrior coming in, um, out of me. Um, and I remember I created, I came out of the paper, a picture of me with my sign. Um, and I remember it was a picture that I had created. It said, stop the brutality. And this is, uh, 96. That was a 96. I remember because it was almost to the day, 20 years later that I was, it came out in the news, San Antonio newspaper at a Trump protest, um, in 2016. Um, I remember it was just almost like a few days apart where I came out of the paper in two different protests, but um, it said stop the brutality and they had a picture of, of office of the officer um, just like on top of him, just hitting him. And it was, and I remember that, that poster that I created, somebody had collected it because somebody said they were collecting posters from that event to put into a museum, but I never knew whatever happened to that poster, but uh, I still remember creating it and, the anger that I felt and the, and he was never charged. He was just fired from the police force. And it was just, um, it was, uh, that's where I found my calling for, for social justice. That's where I knew that that's where it was. And so when I went to the university, I just continued, I joined a Chicano organization there and, um, 
and it was politically also it was a matcha which is um which is a very highly political organization it was stronger back then it's not as strong now but it was even stronger when it first started in the 70s so yeah so obviously some of the things that have been happening here recently have resonated obviously with with what you are what you experienced um mm -hmm. So what are some other causes maybe that uh, that you are, you belong to that you feel very strongly about? Uh, what are some mm -hmm. of the things that you think needs to be changed with the United States maybe? Um, what are your opinions mm -hmm. on, on some of those things? Well, just um, some of the causes is a lot of things that, I'm, that I like to get involved in and as much as I can is um, my PhD is in bilingual education. So that's obviously uh, is a... a hard issue that I'm really a big proponent of. And uh, so that's that's what my dissertation was on the policy, Texas policy. So that's a big issue that I'm really involved in because it involves a lot of what's going on right now with immigrants coming into the country, um, refugees coming into the country, and they're coming in to our schools, into my own classroom this year. I had some um, from Honduras come in that were refugees. and so noticing that the policy that's been created um, in, in Texas since from the early 1900s, you know, at the 20, turn of the 20th century, leading up to the 70s and 60s, when all of the civil rights issues came out and how policy has still um, created the sense of that um, we're not getting the best possible um, um, research-based methods allowed to be into put into our classrooms because of policy that's put in place here and just looking at it from a Texas statewide level that's uh, so that's a big issue that I'm pushing because now that more research is out and how research-based studies have shown different methods that are that have not been allowed because we're pushing more towards an Americanization of refugees which is I think is an assimilation that I don't think needs to be part of what America is. Um, I think it needs to be more of a plural type society or a what we call a um, a tossed salad or mixed salad type of instead of a uh, melting pot. I don't approve of the I don't believe in the melting pot theory. I believe more of the mixed salad theory, where we all live together, like all, still the, all flavors that are involved need to have their own place to shine, I guess you could say. Right. So, so, so don't try to take that away from us. Don't try to take that richness away from culture, from, from language. Language is culture. Um, and so taking away, take, trying to take that away to try to make somebody what we call American is, um, I think it's very detrimental to someone's who, who they are and where they're coming from. So I think that um, it's important for this for people who are coming here to learn English, but at the same time maintain their native language because it makes America that much more rich in terms of um, teaching their their children the language and also teaching them learning English at the same time. So, but laws right now don't that's not what the, the laws are right now. Right now, it's uh, the attempt to try to get them into English as quickly as possible. And so they don't maintain their language, and a lot of kids, even to, even myself, is uh, is uh, we lose a lot of that um, Spanish, and so our Spanish is broken. And then, but then I go further extreme because some of my 
my research, I got into someone who named, her name is Gloria Ansaldua, and she went into, uh, you know, even though, especially here in Texas, we have so many different types of Spanish and dialects of Spanish. And some of us say they call us mochos or fochos because of the way we speak it when I go down to Mexico. And, um, and because of that, that we have these, they call them heridas or wounds that we hold that we're not accepted over here, we're not accepted over there. So we're, we're stuck in this Borderlands and that's the name of her book, Borderlands. It's a beautiful book to read because it, it helps you um, identify like who, who we are here um, growing up here in Texas, that we, we, we should be, we should have pride in who we are. And even with these different slang, mixing Spanish and English, it's still a beautiful thing. And to accept that and to, and to um, own it. And so she, with her book that she wrote, she does that on purpose. She wants people who read that, who may be monolingual English speakers, who only speak English, to feel uncomfortable, to feel uncomfortable in what it is to be, um, to what it is to to have a different language put in front of you without an explanation. So she'll mix the languages in her book while she's writing. She'll mix English and Spanish while she's writing and not translate. Why? Because um, she wants you to feel that, like, what give you a little empathy about of what a lot of like uh, Mexicanos or or Central Americans that are coming across what they're going through. So that's one of my, I guess, one of the plights that I support in terms of um, trying to change policy. And I've spoken to professors about what are the steps to take to to, to create more. And I fear a lot of uh, because a lot of uh, conservatives don't feel that that's the route. They want to Americanize um, students or people that are coming from different countries as quickly as possible and to desert a lot of their um, customs and, and language. Uh, and so different little laws that are being placed, I fear are attempting to dwindle or diminish bilingual education more uh, than they than rather than actually uh, be proponents to maintain that 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 uh, first language that they come with. So that's one of the big things. Another. I'll say uh, I'll I guess if you before you go on to that, I'll say I'll say this. I consider myself a conservative, but I definitely love the fact that I am Hispanic, and uh, mm -hmm. the fact that we have a, a a whole other culture besides just America, because obviously America is a whole bunch of different things put together. Um, I really believe that that uh, the the the, uh, the uh, language of Spanish is a lot more passionate sounding. Uh, you know, I, obviously I go to church, and whenever I hear preaching in Spanish, it just feels like there's more, there's more. Uh, I don't even know how to say. It. There's just more passion to it, and uh, I really feel that in any language, even whether it be German, French, or whoever, whatever, we should celebrate and uh, and definitely hold on to it. And it's it's definitely part of, like you said, culture. And if you're a student or if you um if you're someone who's open-minded you should be open to uh, everybody's culture right agreed so what's what's some of the other um some of the other things that you're that you're very passionate about uh as far as on the political end i know that you you're running a uh 
I guess it's a campaign of some sort where you're you're talking about police brutality and giving people a platform to talk about their experiences with maybe some of the uh, um, some of the experiences they've had. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Right. Well, um, because growing up, like I said, growing up in, in in the neighborhood I grew up in, and it just didn't happen there. But I've had several experiences with police officers where they were very negative, and that's this was at a time when. I was never committing a crime or involved in any type of criminal activity. I wasn't part of any gangs, but because of the color of my skin, um, I was, I was, it was the way that I was treated during those encounters that, that, um, that traumatized me um, to this day, like in terms of interactions with police officers. Um, so now that the, with the Black Lives Matter movement, um, I think that uh, I was, like I said, I've been protesting since the mid nineties, you know, for police, against police brutality. And I think it's an issue that needs to be brought. And I'm hoping that change happens with it now, because just based on my experiences, having a gun pointed by an LEO, a law enforcement officer, um, a couple of times in my lifetime is it's traumatizing or, or being told by a by a white police officer that telling my girlfriend that that I was a thug that I wasn't going to amount to anything just because of the way I looked, you know, that um, that's it's a mentality and it, and it and it scares me. It scares me because I have family that's in law enforcement, um, and you know I don't know. Um, what law enforcement is because I've haven't I've never been a, a, in law enforcement, but I think that the culture of law enforcement um, seems to point to this this thin blue line that that kind of scares me. It scares me because it's almost a us versus them, and I've always seen that that to, it always says to protect and serve it on almost every squad car you see you see to protect and serve and and i think the serve the serve isn't um what it should be um i think it could be so much better i think when they see people of color this is not all this is the racist ones and then we are it's just like bullying in schools you have the bully you have the bad kids and they're going to target people that they don't like and then you have the bystanders the bystanders i think are doing the worst damage and that's i think that's what's happening with policing at this time because you have the bad ones and they're they're creating they're doing these these things to people that they don't like and they target them i'm not saying that they target but when they have them there they 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 use their power to oppress them and so the people that are around that may not agree with that officer, they either have the fear of that officer because they may be a senior officer, or they feel like they don't have to, they, they, they stand off because they think that this is the way it's supposed to be, or they don't have the mindset or the consciousness of what's going on and that it's a bad thing. They think that this is just, it, it's okay to do this. Uh, everybody has their own mind and what, what they see and what they're going through. So, I think that the, there's far more people that are being these bystanders that are allowing this to happen, just like we saw with, with uh, George Floyd. 
recently, you know, there were four, three or four other officers there on scene that were bystanders almost, um, that they, they, they allowed this to happen. And, uh, and I think that that's a problem because, because it, 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 it becomes a, uh, a part of that culture. Like that's okay. And it spreads as they interact with one another. And then the, this wolf pack mentality that we have to stick together because it's us versus them, which it shouldn't be. It should be, a t and I think one of the answers is creating more type of community policing where police officers, you know, I've done ride-alongs, right? And during these ride-alongs, I've, um, I've seen a lot of downtime that's happening. They're waiting for the call, right? They're waiting for a, a speeder. They're waiting for calls. They, 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 you know, there's a lot of downtime where they're, they, they could be sitting down and doing, just waiting for 30, 45 minutes or doing, a, doing, you know, just, I don't know. Sometimes I just see them parked next to each other, just talking for a long period of time. And I'm wondering like, what can they do during that time? What is it? Is there, is there a way that they can go and see some kids playing out on the playground and go and talk to them? seeing somebody walking by and having an actual conversation just to have that conversation. Uh, just being more interactive with the good folks of community, because I know that what they see in society is the negative of society. That's who they have to interact with. Yes, they get the speeders and things like that, but the negative interactions that they're having are with the criminals most of the time. And because, because of that, I think that that creates this also this consciousness of, 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 that this community is this way because this is where I'm always called to. But then, then we're going all the way back to why is this community this way? And this is where we get into systemic racism of why are certain communities have higher uh, crime rates? And that's, on, that's something that um, another thing we have to discuss in terms of um, the socio-historical aspects of why we have cycles of violence in certain neighborhoods, why we have cycles of poverty in certain neighborhoods. and um, how do we change that? And uh, so, and I think it, it comes into these neighborhoods becoming segregated and at the same time um, having um, cycles of, of negative things that are happening within society. So um, I think that's a big factor. I agree with you when it comes to uh, the policeman should take every opportunity to do the, the positive stuff rather than just wait for all the negative things to happen. Uh, right. I know that uh, the, the, in the school that I work with, the SROs there, I always take time to sit there and talk with whoever, even if it's an uncomfortable question. I know right. we have something called um, uh, Coffee with a Cop, where you can mm -hmm. kind of go in and basically it's a neutral zone and you can mm -hmm. talk to them and ask them, hey, what do you think about this thing in, in, in the neighborhood? Or what do you think about this? What do you think right. of that without ha having fear of any kind of repercussion or right. things like that? Mm -hmm. Do you think that that could be something that, that maybe on a monthly or once a month type thing where someone can have an open forum with policemen? Do you think that that would help? That, um, you that's think that a beginning. That's a start. That's very much a start. But I think it'll hit a lot of the superficial areas of, in terms of what's going on with, with a lot of police departments. I know that we used to have um, in, in Oak Cliff, they, used to, they were creating storefronts to, and in, in an attempt to create community policing. Um, storefronts were where the, the police departments would, would run out these uh, small little um, places 
and they would have an officer there throughout the day. And it was like a sort of like a little, they'd have activities for the neighborhood kids to come around and just do stuff there. And he would talk to them, you know, and he would do little, he would do boy scouts. They would do, uh, the, they would do this. I remember I did the, the scouts and I would go there um, for that. And, you know, just, it was just an, a way to engage ourselves with them. And it was, it was called the storefront for, for DPD, but then they, it stopped and they, they moved out of there. And, and that was that, I mean, that, that, that's a beginning, but I think there's so much more beneath that iceberg that we need to hit. And that's, I think that's the systemic part that we're not, that, that we're not, we're not touching, that we're not um, really delving into. We're, we're hitting a lot of the surface level things in terms of what's going on right now. Um, what we need to do is how do we change police departments and how do we change policing to, to, to create uh, more equity in terms of how they police uh, neighborhoods, how they police people, um, and just um, the culture of it. How do we, how do, we do all of that? And, and it's, an, it's not an answer that I have. Um, but it's something that the experts and the people and police departments have to get involved in. Uh, community, like um, organizations have to get involved. Communities have to get involved. You know, Black Lives Matter has to be part of that conversation. Uh, communities of color have to be part of those conversations. Everybody has to be a stakeholder in this in order to change it. Uh, and everybody has to be part of that decision-making process. But we still can't change minds. And so sometimes if we have that mentality, it's either going to be changed or it's got to be removed. Because if we have a racist mentality within police departments, it has to be removed. Um, it has, to, if it's not going to change, it has to be removed. So how do we, how do we do that? How do we, how do we reappropriate our resources that we're doing in police departments to help find what's going to create a more positive uh, police department that's going to um, not have these issues. So, I mean, I'm sure that there are police departments around the nation that have already taken these steps. They've, they've been proactive with taking steps to create a more um, uh, positive interaction between them and their community. And, and I'm sure it's been a whole education type process where they've changed a lot of it. So why don't we look at them and, and see what's going on there and, and, but not just that, but we need to get communities involved. We need to get them involved within their own departments, within their own cities, within their own communities, because every community is different and their needs are different. So we have to get everybody involved. I do agree that, uh, that everyone needs to be part of the conversation. Um, mm -hmm. The only way to know somebody else's perspective is if, if you talk to them and uh, respect them uh, for whatever it is that they're saying. And I think part of that, uh, the art of conversation has been lost throughout this whole time period that, hey, you're wrong and you're wrong and I'm right and you're right, we need to have an open conversation. I think right. that's part of, yeah. part of the thing is that nobody wants to be wrong, and, but everybody mm -hmm. wants to be right and nobody mm -hmm. wants to listen to each other anymore. And I think right. that that's part of uh, something that we lost. It definitely needs to be done within every community, like you said, uh, but mm -hmm. people need to be willing to listen too. And I think that's yeah. kind of something that we've lost. I think there's a, the there's a huge disconnection. Right. And I think there's just a huge disconnection with all of that where, where we have um, 
especially in terms of political parties and the division that's happening right now where it's very it's very very black and white right now in terms of that no one's going to budge no one's going to budge with with their platforms no one's going to budge with with their beliefs the conversation the 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 environment right now is not set for a conversation to happen right now it's too volatile right now um it's going to take time and it's going to take a type of leadership i think that's going to bring be able to bring them bring the nation together because right now i i just think the leadership that we have right now is very it's it's very they see things very black and white very divisive and i think that we're not we're not we're not the environment is not set up for us to have those conversations um because because of of the issues um being brought up and how they're brought up and how they're discussed um at that level and so and how they're promoted either through social media and not just that but the innuendos and the and the just the little side things that are coming through that that make you see okay this is what you're actually doing i mean and maybe it's not but it's just what as we see and from previous um actions is well yeah i mean that's that's all we can conclude based on based on previous actions uh do you, so do you i don't know that's, that's just trump or is that all political parties involved cuz i feel like well, both sides are pretty 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 much like that i was talking to my daughter yesterday and cuz i know that she's on social media and she sees the extremes i see the extremes um and honestly i'm tired of both sides uh and you know, i try to i try to support what's right from what i from what i feel is right but i feel like one side doesn't let people grieve the other side just wants to to counter whatever it is that they're grieving about and they just there's just too much of too much of that right uh and i honestly i'm i'm tired of all of it and i really i'm more one of the i'm in my in my own personal opinion i'm one of those guys who say hey well let's look at all sides let's look at the facts let's try to make something of it let's make it happen in this case compromise isn't a bad thing if, if we can push everything forward right you know I mean? right well i think um i think right now the just the political environment right now it's too hostile i think that we um we're in the middle of of protests we're in the middle of corona we're in the middle of um just social unrest and right now there's a lot of anger there's a lot of anger and and i don't think anyone's going to listen to anyone at this point i think we need to give it time but i think the conversation still need to continue where they can so um swift action isn't going to uh putting bandaids on certain things isn't going to fix the problem it's going to just uh let it uh it's going to just make you feel okay for a little while but it's going to something that's going to happen in the future and it's just it, it's just it's snowballing little by little it's i mean this has been snowballing since um you know since obama was in office um it's just been little by little these things have been happening and they're more prevalent now with cam on our phone 
And so that we see, and that's something uh, that right now we're at, we're, we're, we're what we say, like as Dr. West says, Dr. Cornell West, he says, we're at this tipping point. We're at this point where, where are we going to go? Which way are we going to go? Which way do we want to go as a country? And we're, we're, we're on that fence. We're straddling it. And we need to make that decision of, of what's, going to, what, what's going to define what America is. And I think that um, I really felt that um, we were going in a certain direction where it was more of a time where we were going through that transition of having our first African-American president and possibly having the first female president, which is, I think, another uh, group of people that have been marginalized as well, to going into this very ultra-right um, leadership that has just blew people out of the water in terms of, whoa, like it just took the country to a whole different side. It's just like that fence, no, it just fell. You know, we just fell into something that that we did not see coming. It just took, it just blindsided us, and I think you know the Tea Party movement helped that, um, and I think um, it's just been. Uh, I think what happened when Donald Trump was elected, it um, it made us realize that that this type of extremism isn't gone yet. It's still there. It still lingers. And, and uh, you know, I see it as um, when, when I see, when I went to, I, I went to a Bernie Sanders rally and I see um, the, the, the militia guys with their guns standing out there with their Trump flags waving it and uh, them hanging um, an effigy of somebody off a tree. I see it when um, when they have those Confederate flags flying right next to the Trump flag, it, it, and, it, and it's and it's and it's it can scare people. It can really cause this fear um, that we didn't expect to happen. I don't think, and I think that people that were hoping for a different kind of America um, don't see. Trump's "Make America Great Again" slogan. They 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 don't see it as the way many Republicans see it, and it's very. I don't know. It's very. Uh, I guess you could say very lopsided in terms of what compromise looks like for them. And what do you um, what do you think of um Hispanic people who support Trump, black people who support Trump, uh and those kind of things? Do you think that that's right for them to do, or do you think that that's their uh what what do you think about those things? I know that obviously you want to fight for all people, but right. what do you what do you think when you see that and you, you say you see you see the, the Confederate flags and those different things and it kinda scares you? What do you say to those people who, who it doesn't scare or who it does who kinda are in support of those things? And his policies. Well, a lot of them, they hold. Well, I think a lot of them they do hold uh, conservative values. That's that's the thing. So, 
when you look at what conservative values are, I had this conversation with actually a conservative black man. Um, and uh, it's like, what are those conservative values that, that you believe in Trump? It's why you're supporting Trump because um, I see and um, when I see him as, as that, I, I don't know how a person of color can support a racist. And it's like, what do you see in him that I'm not seeing and I still see him as a racist and so conservative values um, as I see him as you know pulling up pulling yourself up by your bootstraps is that mentality where if you have the will if you have the capacity and if you have the, the ganas I guess you could say uh, for lack of a better word um, that you'll, you'll, you'll be able to succeed you'll word. have the success <laughs> right, you have the success, right? And so I've always, I, I try to use the analogy um, that I understand that. And I understand that if you have certain privileges, you can, you, you do have that capacity to, you could grow up dirt poor and you, you have that, this capacity, you have this um, social network that allows you to, to do all of that. You know, they say it talks about takes, it takes a village where Clinton, Hillary has said, it takes a village. Well, you know, not just a village, but having connections, having those social networks and uh, a monetary networks to be able to accomplish whatever you want to. Yes, you're going to make it. Having safety nets is huge. And so a lot of them, they have, if you talk to a lot of them, they've made it. You know, they, they um, a lot of people that I've seen that are, um, like he owns his own business. He says that he grew up poor, but he made it. And, and to me, it's a yes. A lot of us do make it. They, what we consider success. I don't consider success monetary success. I can, but a lot of people do. That's just what America is. So, you know, you make it monetarily. You have the, you know, you have the three-bedroom house with, with the garage and the, the white picket fence. That's the American dream you've made. It. And I don't consider that success. But um, a lot of people do. I consider success to be, to, to be, basically to be happy with your family or whoever, what, whatever you consider family to be family, and being happy with them, and being secure. That's basically what I feel uh, success is. Um, that's how I define it. So the way I see it is, uh, they, they, they don't, they lack the consciousness of what got them to where they are now today. Um, there's something that I studied as part of my research called, uh, there's not really even an English word for it. I'd have to make it up, but it's a Portuguese word. It's called conscientización. And it's, it goes with the word consciousness um, and, and conscientiousness. It's, 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 it's be, basically being woke, right? You know, the, 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 that little phrase, being woke, um, understanding why someone is oppressed, understanding why you may be oppressed. And it's something uh, Paulo Freire, he's the one that authored uh, a book called Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And it talks about that. It talks about having this level of consciousness where, where you understand that you are being oppressed. And so because you know, you can work towards it, uh, towards changing that. 
because now you have this special power that you know. A lot of people in America don't even know this. A lot of people that are being disenfranchised right now, people of color that are being, they don't even understand that, um, that the, the situations that they're in because of this cycle of poverty and this um, policy that has created a lot of these um, social constructs in our, um, in America that have created this. Now, people that have made it, talk, going back to that, um, I always give this analogy. Here's the way I see it. I see it as that, the, first of all, they're using anecdotal things. It's something that happened to them. I made it, why can't you? And uh, I say, I, you know, I could easily say that based on my life. I made it, why can't you? But I don't do that. I'm more of the empowering type of person where I want to empower people to for them to understand that they're going to have to navigate through some things to be able to to make it the way the way I would I can do what I consider um, well first of all just for them to understand that what is how do you measure success because everybody has their own measure of success but not just that but how do we um, what I want to teach them is to navigate themselves to be able to navigate themselves through through life. Um, and know, understand how to face these obstacles that are going to be placed in front of them. And uh, so the analogy is, yes, just pull on your bootstraps and do what you need to do to survive. But people of color, especially black people of color, they had to put, in, put on boots that are filled with nails, and they have to walk through a minefield to reach their goals and they don't have privileges that that white people have in this country because laws are not created for them they're created by dominantly by white men that's who have created these laws since the beginning of this country and they've created laws to maintain power to cold power to 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 create what they want their vision of america and so when you see disproportionate amount of um, numbers in terms of education, the, the gaps, why is that? Why do we have uh, white families 10 times wealth than black families? Why do we have that? Uh, why do we have um, these neighborhoods that are considered uh, um, disenfranchised or the poor neighborhoods or the barrios or the ghettos? Why do we, what, what created that? And just my example that I gave earlier about bilingual education, why are we uh, using practices that are going to be detrimental for kids in their future, for our, uh, for our Hispanic kids? You're giving, a, we're, we're, we're putting these laws that are gonna, going to not give them the best in education because when we're teaching them, we're pushing them too fast into English and so they haven't learned academic skills in their native language to be able to access that English, to, to be able to transfer it into the English language. So, they're, you, so they, they, they start falling behind. And then we have these higher um, rates of dropout for them. We have um, lower test scores coming out from them. Why is that? And, and we have to look back at policy that has created this type where we want to get them into a transitional type of program. So that's a, just a, one example that I saw that shows that, that um, this policy was created to 
um, to Americanize and not just Americanize, but uh, to to push this language, which is culture, out of our students, and um, and it's 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 I would say it's called a whitewashing of of who we are, and so that's just one. And so we look at redlining that's going on within uh, neighborhoods, you know, that which happened many cent uh, decades ago, where neighborhoods were created so that people of color couldn't buy in certain neighborhoods based on just based on the color of their skin and so that has that just doesn't have an effect back then it's it it continues because everything has a as has a cause and what we have today has even if redlining was is removed which it's not in in there's ways but it has caused these cycles that have continued up to this day and so i think that um that's what that's what's considered systemic racism that's how you define systemic racism it's where there's policies in place whether in the police departments whether it's in education whether it's in housing that has created disparities and that are statistically you can see them that are of high why are there more um, why high, higher rates of blacks in prisons? Why is that? But not just that, but you go back to like why is because they're more they they they're, they're arrested more. Why are they arrested more? And why is there more violence? Why is there more drugs? Why is there more? Um, so we you have to go back. You have to go back of what created this. And if America doesn't change the policies to be able to say okay, well this. Is the this is the effect of what we created? Why can't we create policies to change that? Why can't we create policies to to reverse that? How do we reverse it? Now I don't have the answer to that, but how do we reverse it so that we can have more equity? And that's all we're fighting for is equity. How do we get equity in schools? How do we get equity in housing? How do we get equity in police departments where we have? You know, because everything is statistics. You know, there was this, uh, I can't remember what the, the, the test was, but it was in England where this guy asked, asked uh, um, it's this rule of, rule of averages, where this, they asked, like, how much does this, I don't know what animal it was, I won't say it was a pig. It was, they were telling the crowd to guess what the weight of this pig was, right? And the, you know, they said, let's just say it was 357 pounds. That was the average of everybody that says, well, guess what? That's how much the pig weighs. And so this is the law of averages tells us that, okay, then if there's 67% of whites in, in the country, then why aren't 67% of whites um, in, in prisons? If there's a, only a 60% uh, of blacks in, in uh, America, why are they disproportionately being shot more than, than, than white in terms of rates? they're three times more likely to be shot. So it's like, why isn't the law averages working? Because there's something wrong in the system. There's something wrong in the system that's creating this. Do you, so do you that's something that we need to look at. Do you think it's going to be possible to uh, to make those changes? And uh, if well, I so, think if, how, how long do you how, think that that will be? Well, it's going to take generations, actually, I think. Well, maybe maybe in the next two generations, I think what we need is, more people of color in tight in leadership positions 
uh, that's one thing that's going to help. People that are that think progressively know that these exist. How do we change these policies? Um, how do we change communities, leaderships within at the city lo local level? And not just that, but um, people that are CEOs out there, the 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 people that have this power, you know. And I'm talking about even uh, you know the white people, the CEOs of power. They have this power to change, to create, to add more people to their board, to give, you know, because I'm not, I'm not the monetary type. I'm not the, the one to say, but that's, we're in a capitalist country. So, you know, that's how we're, we measure success and that's how statistics, statistics measure. Well, well, the disparities in even getting kids, getting families into that middle, uh, to, you know, middle uh, level, you know, to how do we, as CEOs of companies, how do we create companies that allow that to happen? Where we have mid middle class families uh, being able to have that. And I think um, that's what's gonna make the changes because that's where the power is. And so, you know, I think that's what I liked about Bernie Sanders was a lot of him spoke about that 1%. Getting the 1% to not only pay their fair share, but also to um, think about their companies and how, what are they doing to their companies to include more people of color in these top positions. But not just that, but how do we, um, how do we uh, create spaces for people to become CEOs that are people of color? Because the disparities are just phenomenal in terms of, of that, in terms of, with wealth, you know, talking about just just in the, in the field of wealth. And so I think it's gonna take people in power, allowing, getting more people of color in power. Uh, it's gonna take communities getting involved in that change and that, and that change in policy. And I think it's uh, leadership that we have now listening, listening and acting. It's gonna take a lot of action. So I think that's what's going to be um the things that are going to, to 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 help change all right man it's been a great conversation i just want to ask you one last thing how do you want to be remembered when everything is all said and done i know you're a family man you're a teacher you're an activist what is it that how do you want to be remembered when everything is all said and done um i guess i just want to be remembered as someone who uh who served people. That's, that's it. That I wanna, that I served the disenfranchised. I, I, that I served, that, that I, that I served people. That's how I wanna be remembered. All right, man, well, I appreciate your time. And let this be a lesson to anybody who's out there. I'm on the conservative side, you're on the liberal side. We can come and have a conversation. Uh, and- um, that's right. And I think that if as, as long as we're sharing ideas and things like that, I think we can be better as a society, better as a country. And uh, mm -hmm. thank you for your time, man. I appreciate it a lot. All right. All right. Thank you, PJ. We'll no see problem. you later. Yes, sir.